0: You are listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. I swear it is my fate in life just to have loud neighbors. The situation with the dog back home in L.A. was actually solved. I heard the dog once in three days. I think so many of the neighbors complained that they finally did something about that dog. I actually think they moved them. I was walking to my parking garage the other day and I heard this crazy loud bark coming from the other side of the hallway and it sounded like the dog that was across the hall. And I was like, did these people move? I feel sorry for the people that are being terrorized, but I'm glad it's not me anymore. But right now I'm in Miami. I've begun the odyssey that I've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. My neighbors, bless their hearts, it is 1240 in the morning and they are blasting some sort of Latin music. I know it's Spanish. I have no idea who the artist is or what they're saying. And it's not bad music either. They're adding a little hip-hop in there too. They just finished playing Meg's Thought Shit, which the video is too much for me. But I actually realize I like the song. <laughs> I don't know if it's picking up on the podcast. But if it is, that's the, uh, the background noise that you're hearing. Great playlist. Just... You know, if I wasn't recording a podcast, it wouldn't bother me. Like, I fully recognize that, like, I'm staying at a party hotel in a party city. Like, this is what I signed up for. But I'm like, God damn. this odyssey is off to quite a wonderful start. It was a little rocky at the beginning. Like, my flight was supposed to leave. I was taking a red eye out of LAX. It was supposed to leave at one thirty in the morning. And I was supposed to get to Miami at 9.30. And we didn't leave until 10.40 a.m. Luckily, they told me way in advance. I got to the airport for an 8.45 flight. And then got an alert that it was delayed right when the flight was supposed to take off. That was for 9.45. And then like at 9.20, we were told that we were leaving at 10. So we actually took off at 10.20. I didn't get to Miami until 6 o'clock, which is fine. I didn't have anything planned for the day other than I wanted to go to Sea spice And I had reservations for 7.15. So I was like, I have to make this work. So like I scrambled from the airport and scrambled up to my room. Showered, changed clothes, put like half a face of makeup on. And went to meet one of my friends for dinner. And it was worth all the hassles. Sea Spice is absolutely amazing. I haven't been to Miami. I don't know how long it's been open. But I haven't been to Miami in years and years and years. And if it was open the last time I was here, I hadn't heard about it. Otherwise, I would have been. That was my first stop in Miami. And it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. It started raining right when we got there. So we had to eat inside. I was sitting facing a window. And Sea Spice is right on the river. And there were yachts sailing up and down the river as we were dining. And people kept buying bottles. So the servers were going by with like the sparklers, like, you know, like a club. And the music was like super loud. I was like yelling to talk to my friend, but really, really good DJ. And then people were up dancing. It was like a day party at 7 p.m. But it was great. It was, it was absolutely great. Like there were smoke machines. There were, um, what are they called? They were showgirls except they had like their boobs covered, but they had like the feather headpieces and like I guess maybe like carnival outfits might be a better description than showgirls. But they're very similar. They're very like elaborate. Lots of feathers, lots of um lots of rhinestones, like of glitter and glistening and, you know, sexy and all of that. It was a really, really good time. So then some of my other friends were in town from New York. Like, I landed in Miami and started posting. And then people just started hitting me up and left and right. Like, you're in Miami? I'm in Miami. Like, my college roommate was in Miami. My hairdresser from D.C. was in Miami. One of my favorite bloggers, I didn't get a chance to reach out to her because I didn't have a whole bunch of time. But she was in Miami. Then ex, long ago ex. I mean, like, 15 years. He was in Miami. And he's in Miami with, like, this guy who's, like, my brother, he and his wife just had a beautiful, beautiful baby girl, When he was in town for work. So, like, everyone's down here. Um, I wish I could stay longer. Actually, by the time you hear this podcast, I will probably be on a flight to my next destination. I told y'all I was going on an odyssey. Tomorrow's adventure involves a plane, a bus, a ferry, and possibly a golf cart. It's, it's an all-day adventure. But hopefully, I'll be able to get up in the morning. I gotta get up early because I'm getting a wax. But hopefully I'll get some pool time in the morning and then not have to sit in the airport all day. I hope the airplane gods shine in my favor and my flight is not delayed and I can make all of my, um, what is the word, transfers on time in the morning. Pray. Pray for always my safety, but also my ease of travel. Traveling mercies, as they like to say. What else is going on? I'll be honest with you, I haven't really been paying much attention to the news. If it's like, you know, sit on my phone or go run around with my friends or go wander around Wynwood, I'm always going to choose the latter over the former. Yo, it feels so good to be out again. Wynwood is probably like my favorite, it's not even my favorite place in Miami, it's just one of my favorite places. Like, fewer things bring me more joy than just walking around and looking at art. Whether it's street art, as in the case of Wynwood, or whether it's in a museum, or whether it's just like a really beautiful city and walking around looking at the architecture, there are a few things that give me greater joy. So this afternoon, after the storm, the weather cooled down. Um, So like around 630, when the temperature was dropping, I just went over to Wynwood and I walked around for two hours, just taking pictures of like just beautiful art. It's been over a year since the last time I was here. Actually, longer than that. I don't think I've been here since 2019. So it's been a while. So there was definitely a lot of fresh art to see in Wynwood. Some of my old favorites were still there with, you know, painted over a little bit. But there were lots of new pieces to see and lots of new restaurants. Wynwood is like really developed in like the last couple years. I stopped in some little sidewalk restaurant to get tacos. And I ordered a drink and I ordered a drink. And I was waiting for my waiter to come back. And like this big gust of wind... And a thunder and a, and a a thunderclap happened. And I was like, look, I ain't seen rain in a really long time because, you know, L.A. Like, it does, but it's so rare. Like, when it happens, you're, like, fascinated. Like, oh, my gosh, there's water falling from the sky. But it's rained a bunch since I've been here. But I was sitting outside, and then, like, the gush of wind and the thunderclap, and I was like, oh, no. I was on my phone immediately for my Uber. It took six minutes, and it was pouring rain by the time my Uber got there. So... At least I got my drink. It was a good drink. I took it to the head and I had to come back to the hotel and lay down, which is why I'm recording at 1250 in the middle of the night, listening to my neighbors blast whatever they're blasting. I have no idea what they're playing right now. What else is going on? Oh, I saw pictures and video and articles about this Pyre Moss show in new york now i usually do not have fomo about anything happening on the east coast like there's enough going on in the west and like their parties are beautiful with with gorgeous venues and big budgets so i actually prefer parties among the west but this fashion show to kick off pyre moss's first couture line and i want to say it was for paris fashion week it was at Madame cj walker's estate up in the hudson valley I've been to that estate a couple times, not for events. I think the first time I went was on a press tour. I was still writing for The Root at that time, and I got an invite. Her great-great-granddaughter was hosting a press event, and she wanted folks to come and see the house. I think they were trying to get the house into like one of those like preservation societies, but it's a beautiful, beautiful mansion. Um, I think Madam C.J. Walker only lived in it, Maybe like three years. Like she built, she built that beautiful house and then she passed away. But it's absolutely gorgeous. Like it's, it's chandeliers and stained glass windows and her, and the ground, the backyard was just like, oh, like the house from the front, like, you know, it really looks like something like you're aware that you're walking up to like a rich person's home. But from the back, it's like, oh no, this is a wealthy, a wealthy home. Like it's got the, um... Calling it a balcony is inaccurate, but it's got, like, you know, multiple... It's got the leveled structures. There's a beautiful garden. There's a swimming pool. There's a fountain. Like, it's it's absolutely breathtaking. So, for this black designer that's part of Paris Fashion Week, and then to to present... To host the event there, and to have, like, the who's who of New York in attendance. Like, I was scrolling through my timeline, and, like, all of my New York friends were at this show... Debbie was there and Memstore was there. Tiffany, what's Tiffany's name? Blogger Tiffany. She's like my favorite. That girl dresses her ass off on some neck shit that you ain't even like thinking to put together. She just, she just whips it up. Like, I love that girl. Tiffany Battle. That's what I'm talking about. Tiffany Battle. That girl dresses. There were so many people. It was like everyone who's in New York that hasn't moved to LA was at that event. And I was like, oh shit. Like for an itty bitty, little, little itty bitty moment. I still wished I lived in New York or at least was on the East Coast so I could have attended because it looked it looked magical. So I, and I'll tell you just how magical it was. It got rained out. Like apparently it was pouring on the day of the event and people stayed. Like Bevy posted this picture. She was soaked. Oh, Angela Benton was there. I love Angela Benton. And our little circle, we call her Birkin. But like she was there, Arisha was there. If you remember when I went to Mexico, I guess last October, maybe, I was with Angela and Arisha. But they got soaked. Everyone got soaked and still stayed. And I was like, now is that because like you love the brand? Or is that because no one drives in New York and y'all took shuttles for like, it had to be like two hours. They had shuttles taking everyone from Brooklyn up to the Hudson Valley to the mansion. Oh, it was so freaking beautiful. But they had a redo a couple days later and no rain and it went off without a hitch. I was looking at the designs and I'll be honest with you. The first time I saw them, I was like, "Okay, I'm not I'm not fully understanding what's happening here. But apparently the designs for the show and again, all couture. So, you know, we're giving art. The designer of of Pyre Moss, Kirby Jean Raymond, his designs for this show were a tribute to black inventors. So there was a peanut butter dress. There was a hot roller cake. I didn't know a black woman had invented the hot rollers. There was an ice cream cone with chaps for the cone. I didn't know we invented ice cream cones. One of the fashions was an air-conditioned unit, an old-fashioned mobile phone, a kitchen mop. I think I saw a folding chair. Now, I knew about some of that stuff, but not all of it. And I was like, look at that. There was a lampshade dress, a chessboard, which I was like, did we invent chessboards? There was also a refrigerator. And on the refrigerator, you know how like your grandmama's house or maybe your mom, they have the, the letters, the colorful letters that are on the refrigerator. So this refrigerator had those letters and they spelled out, but who invented black trauma? I loved it. I loved it. Kirby's having an amazing year. I um I remember pictures from maybe like a month ago in New York. Lena Waithe was there. Lane Welteroth was there I I think I saw this event on Elaine's page, and maybe June, June Ambrose as well. I think he was being honored by Parsons School of Design, and it was on a rooftop. And I want to say the Brooklyn Bridge was in the background. Am I making that up? I don't think so. It was definitely a rooftop, and it was definitely in Brooklyn. It was absolutely stunning photos. So he's having a really good year. Like, Congratulations to him. I guess that's like our good black news for the week. One more thing that I want to talk about before we get into the interview for this week. I had the opportunity to chat with one of my really, really good friends. And we'll talk about her in a moment. But ever since Nicole Hannah-Jones turned down the tenure at UNC and chose to go to Howard, I've been thinking a lot about her decision. And apparently other people have too. I'm going to talk about an open letter that a Howard professor wrote to Hannah-Nicole-Jones I specifically wanted to talk about something that Jones wrote in her open letter. And I've read it a couple times. And each time I get to this part, I start getting like weepy and teary about it. She talks about wanting to attend UNC. And she says being asked to return to teach had, quote, felt like a homecoming. It felt like another way to give back to the institution that had given so much to me. And I get that. That's how I feel about, you know, the University of Maryland and NYU, both my alma maters. Like, I, it's an honor to be invited to speak there. I would be incredibly honored to be asked to be a professor there, even an adjunct. I've actually been rolling around the idea of, of teaching at a university. I think it would be um, a good thing to do. She says that she was very excited about the possibility of returning. And then she says... Now I was being told that the board of trustees would not vote on my tenure and that the only way for me to come teach in the fall would be for me to sign a five-year contract under which I would be considered for tenure at a later unspecified date. She says, quote, by that time, I had invested months in the process. I had secured an apartment in North Carolina so that I would be ready to teach that January. My editors at the New York Times had already supplied quotes for the press release of the big announcement. I did not want to face the humiliation of letting everyone know that I would be the first night chair at the university to be denied tenure. I did not want to wage a fight with my alma mater or bring to the school and to my future colleagues the political firestorm that had dogged me since the 1619 project published. So, crushed, I signed the five-year contract in February and I did not say a word about it publicly. That's the part that gets me. Because I know that I've done similar things, personally and professionally. Like, I thought I had something in the bag because I thought I'd done all the right things that should have placed me in a position to make something easy for me. Like, to make it a go. And then suddenly it became complicated. One instance, being up for a job, and then they offer me next to nothing. And I'm like, I've already told people that there was this big thing. I've already told people that I'm doing it, and like I didn't want to go back and say like, Yeah, like they offered me nothing, which I internalized as a reflection of of my worth, like the, the part she talks about, like the humiliation of not wanting to go back, and so you just push through and are just like, Well, okay, I'll try to make the best of it and in every single instance that I've done that, I finally learned to stop doing it in the last year or so, I've turned down a couple of things that I was like, nah. No. And they actually came back with what they what I thought I was worth. And I was like, "So y'all just tried me just to see?" Yes. But in all of those instances where I settled, I think of the saying that like when you settle for something, you always get less than what you settle for. And I thought about that reading this passage of Nicole Hannah-Jones' statement because they offered her this job without the benefits That it always came with. And she knew why. Because she's black. It's blatantly racist. And instead of walking away from the situation because she didn't want to be humiliated. She just took the job and didn't tell anybody about the details. And was going to keep it that way. A a publication wrote about her not having tenure months after she signed the contract. And that's how the story blew up. I I think we talked about the timeline of that on here. Way, way back. When this story first came to the forefront in an, in an attempt to not humiliate herself, then she accepts the job. Somebody goes and writes an article about how she doesn't have tenure. The major news publications pick it up and then it becomes a national story, a huge firestorm. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone's writing about it. People are protesting. People are taking out ads in newspapers. The journalism school is fighting the board of trustees. People are not donating money to the school. Other potential hires are pulling out. Like this huge thing, which is exactly what she didn't want. And in no way am I saying that it's her fault. I'm just saying that this is an extreme example of what happens when you settle. And so she learned a lesson from it because she's writing it. And she learned the lesson from it because she's writing this in the open letter. And she got her payback because it turns into a huge thing. And UNC eventually offers her tenure, and she swiftly hands them her ass to kiss and tells them that she's going to Howard, where she is appreciated. So it all worked out for her. It is not always all worked out for me. Sometimes I've settled, gotten less than I settled for, and just had nothing at all to show for it other than hurt feelings and embarrassment. It happens. But I tell you that, so that if you recognize yourself and what Nicole Hannah-Jones did, and what I'm telling you I did, stop that shit. Stop that shit. Don't settle. Go get the thing that you really want in a place that really wants you to be there. Whether that's a job, whether that's a man or a woman or they, don't settle. Nicole Hannah-Jones also came up earlier this week. I just mentioned how she, she talked about she wanted to go to Howard where she's like appreciated and not just tolerated. Um, earlier this week. A professor from Howard University, Imani Light. She published a piece on Medium and she titles it An Open Letter to Nicole Hannah Jones. And I feel a way about that. And I'll tell you why in a second. So she writes this piece, and the first part is Welcoming Jones to Howard. Literally, it says, Welcome to the Mecca, sister. That's the opening line. And she writes, You are now part of the greatest collection of black academic excellence the nation has ever known. Your membership here is fitting. In prior semesters, I have assigned excerpts from the 1619 Project. She goes on to say, "Quote: The truth is that the start of your tenure at Howard University is not the beginning of your footprint here." Light goes on to talk about how she's followed the situation with Chapel Hill. She said she signed one of the digital petitions demanding that her tenure case be treated the same as white candidates who preceded her. And then she specifically mentions Jones's line, "Go where you are valued." not where you are tolerated. And she said, I read the Twitterverse and other social media spaces cheering your decision. She said, my heart lurched in empathy and sadly in understanding. And then she drops the kicker. I am a member of a devalued and disrespected faculty at Howard. The administration's leadership practices have soiled the bright and beautiful experiences in teaching that push me into my classes daily, but have dimmed my formerly boundless, excited joy. She says Howard relies significantly upon a faculty of full-time, non-tenure-track professors. We hold the same terminal degrees our tenured and tenure-track colleagues hold. We are well-situated in the most recent research and methods of our discipline. We teach four and five courses per semester. We counsel and advise students. And our students love us because, quite honestly, we are excellent. She goes on to say that three years ago, the full-time faculty who were not in positions subject to tenure at Howard, they organized to create a union. They said She says in three years, Howard has agreed to zero of the union's requests. She laid out a series of issues that she wanted addressed by Howard, one of them. And I don't work in academia. I don't know if this is normal. Somebody tell me. But she says that each year, Howard professors working as lecturers must reapply anew for our jobs. They have to complete an employment application, resubmit a resume, and, quote, act like we've never met. Every single year, we get a letter during the spring semester reminding us that our jobs are over as of May 15th. Also... Each year, Howard professors working as lecturers are reminded that one cannot maintain employment at Howard beyond seven years in a non-tenure-track position. Under this policy, Howard famously parted ways with former faculty members Toni Morrison and Roberta Flack. This letter also talks about the need for substantial salary increases. Apparently, Howard professors, lecturers who hold doctorates, are being paid $48,000 a year. Light notes that this salary is less than a first year kindergarten teacher in DC who holds a bachelor's degree and just graduated in May 2021. She also notes that the average rent in DC near Howard, which used to be the hood but is now like completely gentrified, is $2,500 a month. Yeah, these are like legitimate gripes. And I'm not mad whatsoever at Professor Imani Light for writing this, for bringing it to everyone's attention. I just hate that she used Nicole Hannah-Jones' situation to get attention. And I get it to some degree. Because I'm like, you know, you use what you got in your arsenal to make sure people read it. And it is being read. Like several people sent it to me earlier today. And she specifically says, because it's an open letter to to Nicole Hannah-Jones. She says... We hope that you will stand with us in insisting our administration reach a fair and equitable contract with our union of professors and that they do so quickly to end a three-year-long embarrassment. And if it comes to it, as it appears that it will, we hope that you will even join us in solidarity as it may be necessary to absent ourselves from the work until fairness and equity become part of the administration's agenda. Quite clearly, we have been tolerated. It's time that we now are all valued, we don't want to go. Truth in truth and service, your Howard University colleague. I hate that Nicole Hannah-Jones got dragged into this mess. I absolutely hate it. You could have just posted this and outlined your grievances. But again, without Nicole Hannah-Jones attached, it wouldn't get the same amount of attention. So I get it. I get it. But sis, this is messy. Has she even started the job yet? Messy. And yes, Howard messy too. $48,000? $48,000? Maybe I don't want to teach. Maybe I take that back. If they're paying full time lecturers, that what the hell are they paying the adjuncts? Good lord, and folks are starving. Howard, Howard, I feel so bad for the communications team over there. I mean, I know y'all signed up for communications, but nobody thought like Felicia Rashad, Nicole Hannah Jones, and now this shit all in like what a week and change? That's a lot. My sympathies are with the Howard Communications Department. I feel bad for y'all. I really do. Y'all didn't ask for this. <laughs> I hope y'all getting paid more than 48000 to put up with this shit. Jesus. A few weeks ago, I think I mentioned, or maybe I or maybe I said it, and then in editing, I took it out. I messed up a really dope interview. Deneen Milner, award-winning journalist, New York Times bestselling author. I think she's on like her 26th, 27th book. I can't keep up. Eight or nine of them are New York Times bestsellers. She's like my epic friend. If you can think of an autobiography of your favorite celebrity, Deneen probably wrote it. Taraji P. Henson, she did hers. Cookie Johnson, she did hers. Charlie Wilson, Charlie Wilson. There's there's, there's so many more. She's written like a million books. And she currently has her own imprint at Simon and & Schuster. And one of her many, many passions is nurturing young black minds. And so the way that she does that currently is with Deneen Milner books. She has children's books. I'm reading her official bio on Simon & Schuster. And she says, I'm infinitely more interested in stories that celebrate the everyday beauty of being a little human of color. Black children believe in the tooth fairy, get scared when they contemplate their first ride on the school bus, look for dragons in their closets, have best friends who get into mischief with them. Black children have the same universal childhood experiences that any other human revels in as a kid. And they should be able to see that part of their lives reflected in their stories on their bookshelves. If you get a chance, look up the covers of these books. Like the artistry is just absolutely amazing. Like these are like beautiful black images. So I met Denine when I was working at Essence. When I was the relationship editor, Steve Harvey used to do an advice column for us and I edited him. And Deneen was the co-author with Steve of Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Man. So I would work with Denine to get the questions to Steve and get his answers back to us. She was the go-between to make that happen. So we started working together then, and we just built a wonderful relationship. And over the years, she has become like a mentor, a sister, a friend. Like I just absolutely, I absolutely adore her and her girls. So I called her initially a few weeks ago to talk about her children's books. And we had an amazing conversation about the books and her career. It was wonderful. And the interview didn't record. It recorded my portion, but it didn't pick up Deneen's. I was using a new platform and I just botched it. Um, And I was so embarrassed because I had an episode planned out where I was going to run the interview and I went to edit it and it wasn't there. And I was like, oh shit. And then I had to call Deneen and be like, hey, i fucked this up. And she was like, no worries, sweets. (laughs) And I was like, oh God. She was a journalist in a past life. Although I think once you're a journalist, you're always one. But so she was like, no problem. Like, it happens. And she was like, we'll talk again sometime. Like, something else will come up. She's a faithful listener. So she was like, just call me. She was like, just call me next time, you know, something comes up. So I actually called her about something else that came up. I was writing a story for Very Smart Brothers on Sister Soldier and the Coldest Winter Ever. I hope Panama's not mad if I tell you that. It's for a big project that he's working on. But I just, you know, gave you a hint. Of of what's to come. But I needed some perspective on the publishing industry around the time that the book came out in 1999, because I didn't enter publishing until 2002, 2003. I wasn't in the industry to know about the behind the scenes of the book and the professional hype and all of that. But Deneen had just started writing books and she was a journalist at the time, so I'm sure she covered Sister Soldier. And she was a journalist at the time, so I'm sure she covered Sister Soldier. So I just needed some context. So I called her up to talk about the context for the coldest winter ever. And then we ended up in this whole conversation about Black women and curves and body image. I think she'd also listened to the episode where I talked about the women in Atlanta who were coming back from the, from the DR and had gotten their bodies done. So we were just talking about Black women and body image. And Denine has one of those shapes that people are paying $3,000 to $15,000 to go get done. She has a very ample behind. Think like a Serena Williams, but maybe bigger, and her tummy's flat. You know, some people are big in the ass, but also big in the tummy. Not her situation. She's very tiny on top, very shapely on the bottom. So we got into this really great conversation and I was like, oh my God, we should be talking about this for the podcast. And so she was like, yeah, call me tomorrow. So I did and we recorded it. So I'm really excited to share that conversation with you. Um, Deneen just has amazing insight about many things, but definitely about this as well. So ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and those who do not identify as either, please welcome Deneen Milner to Ratchet and Respectable hey baby hey baby i'm so happy to have you today
1: you know i'm always happy to be here
0: i know i know and there's so much to talk about because i called you the other day about something totally unrelated and we ended up in this conversation about black women and bbls and plastic surgery and ass and i was like i've never thought of it this way Hmm, i don't want to enter this conversation
1: well, you know, we, we should enter the conversation the same way we did, you know, the other day. It's, you know, when people um, look at these bodies as an ideal and then, you know, turn around and tear down women who are trying to attain those bodies, a whole conversation is had on, um, you know, People and their self esteem, and why they would go and get these bodies to begin with, or why they feel like it's necessary and you know, people should be okay being natural. And you know, like I said to you the other day, it's a trigger for those of us who were born this way. Um, And it's a trigger because it's like, you know, I spent a lifetime with. People ridiculing and um you know just looking at my body and having something to say about my big behind and you know spanning from calling me fat and not the p h a t fat but the f a t fat saying that i you know that I should like dress' in in, in mumus and and bag clothes and cover that up, you know, don't get in the swimming pool with, you know, a bathing suit because you you don't nobody need to see all of that. Um, You know, growing up in an era where Jordache jeans were the rage and you literally had to have a pancake ass to fit into those or, you know, just wearing regular jeans and having regular clothes look like buckets, you know, around my waist because, my hip to butt and thigh ratio is, you know, not shaped like what those women were shaped like at the time. You know, having people look at the likes of Kim Kardashian and JLo and, and um, you know, and these women and, and proclaim them an ideal, it's insulting to those of us who had to fight to be seen as something other than fat, fat, as something, um, you know, sloth, slothful, you know, I, it's, it's, I still have moments when, um, you know, like I look at my body and I'm reverted back to those days where I was trying desperately to cover my body up because society said that I didn't fit into, you know, the ideal. Um, eventually, eventually, I got over it. Right. But, you know, it took a long time to get there. And so, you know, this, this is not an easy thing to see people walking around and, um, you know, just acting as if this, this is the ideal and it's, o- it's okay now. It's hard.
0: I imagine that's like a total mind fuck to like spend a good chunk of your life covering up or being shamed for your shape. And then all of a sudden people are going out paying $10,000 for it.
1: And then looking at me as if I did the same thing.
0: (laughs) Are you (laughs) serious?
1: Y'all don't get the fuck away from me with that. Like, you know, I've had women literally walk up to me and pat my, my ass and ask if it's real. Can I touch your ass?
0: Stranger women,
1: strange women, strangers. Yes. Are you serious? Absolute strangers. In conferences (sighs) with strangers. Is is that real? Now, mind you, I've only just recently started wearing clothes where you can actually see my shape. And that's because that's a function, again, of being grown and not really giving a damn what anybody thinks about my body anymore, except for what I consider to be healthy and fit for me. Um, But, yeah, people will walk up to me, women will walk up to me and and ju- just grab ass. Like, is that real? <clears throat> and it's, first of all, get your hands off of me. Second of all, just because, you know, like people are wa- running around here getting, you know, fake behinds does not mean that the entire world is walking around here with fake behinds. Like, surely you must know that Black women and you know, bubbly derriers, it is a natural thing. Like that's a thing for us. It's always been a thing for us. And just because Kim Kardashian came along and made y'all think it wasn't a thing until she came along does not mean that we weren't out here. And whew child, if one more person touches my behind and asks me if it's real, it is a mind That is, that is, that is the only way to describe it.
0: I wish you could see my face like I'm I'm mortified like I I know how people I feel when people come up and ask me like is that your hair or are those your real eyes but most people have enough sense not to touch my hair um oh your ass your ass
1: absolutely that's a lie absolutely but then my girls my daughters do the same thing like they know of course that that my body is real but you know They have come up in, uh, so they had one foot in the era of people not necessarily or just learning how to understand that Black women have, you know, curvy bodies and, and big booties. And then, you know, the era that we're in now, which is, you know, like this needs to be the standard and this is the standard. And if you don't have it, then there's something wrong with you. So everything that... Um, people were looking at as a standard of, of beauty when I was a kid, which was, you know, like the pancake ass and ass jeans. Now it's the exact opposite for them. And so, you know, like they look at my body and they're like, your body's amazing. And they'll come up and they'll, you know, pat my behind and, you know, say, we like the way it jiggles and all of that stuff, right? (laughs) You're nuts. (laughs) You know, like on the face of it, it's funny, right? You know, for my daughters to be chasing me around the house, touching my behind. Um, But, you know, like to have complete strangers running around doing that,
0: nah. It's nuts. That's nuts. That's just such a violation of privacy, self-autonomy, like. Of everything. Everything.
1: Of everything. I had, I once did a, um,
0: a cover story
1: on Serena Williams Mm. and I had to go to Florida to, um, watch her at the cover shoot and then, um, you know, go back to her house and, conduct the interview. And at the time she was doing some kind of diet. Um, She was a no carb diet or something. And she had um, fixed a big ass pot of beans. And, you know, we sat and ate these beans together, beans and turkey meat, smoked turkey. It was delicious. It's so black. I love it. (laughs) It's so black, as black as hell. And we sat in her basement and commiserated on how wild it is That our shapes are now a thing because we both grew up completely, um, you know, hating our bodies, questioning why we were shaped the way that we were and why couldn't we look like, you know, this person for her, it was, you know, um, Venus is um, you know, significantly thinner and her, but she doesn't have as, as big of a behind and, you know, uh, Serena could not. So they, all of the sisters would pass down clothes from one sister to the other. And she was lamenting that she could never fit into their clothes and how self-conscious it made her feel. And then to go out into out and about in the world and have people tell her that her body was not right, or there was something wrong with it, was something that, you know, like she was already self-conscious about. And then she gets onto this international stage and people start calling her man, Rena and comparing her body to a horse or, you know, like, Ah. you know, all of those things that people were saying. And then to have it turn around where, you know, like you have rappers I think Drake had a song where he's talking about, you know, like her body and how beautiful and and amazing and perfect it is to have people looking at her and saying it's perfect now is just like you said, a mind fuck. She was just like, I don't even know what to do with that because for my entire life, I was told my body is wrong. And now it's some kind of, you know, I'm an icon because of the way that I'm shaped that shit is crazy and you know like i guess the overall thing that i wish people would take away from from what she had to say from this conversation that we're having is just like leave us the fuck alone right like all of us women collectively mm-hmm. what we have flat asses big boobies round behinds wide hips no hips thick thighs whatever the hell this is these are our bodies and they're shaped the way the hell they're shaped, and the only person who's in charge of you know saying what it should look like is the person who who that body belongs to and this idea that somebody somewhere you know puts up a chart and says, "This now is the ideal, and everybody who doesn't fit into this ideal sucks, and everybody who does is an icon, so you know do what you will with that information get your book, your ticket to D to the DR and do what you have to do to fit into this is so outrageous um, for us as women. And I wish we women would put our fucking foot down collectively and say enough, enough already. I don't, there should be no reason why there should be 30 women in in wheelchairs Mm -hmm. from, you know, the DR all in the airport at the same time, having had the same procedure. That's not, I did this because I wanted to. That's not just what that is. That's, I did this because I bought into this idea that what I have is not good enough. And I'm trying to fit into some random ass ideal that somebody created today. And then tomorrow, you know, I'll be you know, trying to fit into the next ideal. And so I became a shell, taking all this shit out of my ass and trying to save my own life because I made bad decisions about what to put in my, myself to make myself reach some kind of random ideal that somebody put out. Like, when do we get to the part where we understand that our bodies are just our bodies and the way that they are shaped, bodies come in all different kinds of shapes and sizes and the way that we are shaped is just fucking fine.
0: You know, I think we're a very long way Off from that, this woman wrote into me the other day um, and she was talking to her nieces who were in their early 20s and the nieces were telling her stories about like guys they encountered. I want to say they just graduated from college and the nieces were kind of just like, you know, like this degree is pointless because men don't want women who are smart or who have degrees or have good jobs. Like they're not interested. Like it all boils down to, are you pretty and do you have a dope body? And, and they were like, you know, if we want to, you know, be in relationships, then like we need to get BBLs. And she was like, what do I say to that? And I was like, I, I, I don't even know, sis, because that's crazy.
1: Right. Absolutely insane. And, you know, like one of the things that you say all the time that I love is everybody has, you know, a lid for their own pot. There's a lid for everybody's pot. Right. And that's that's the case. You cannot literally build your body based on what somebody says a certain group likes? Because there are men out there who, you know, like one thing or desire another and what you have will appeal to whomever. Or how about, you know, like you pick a guy who isn't just talking to you just because you have a fat ass and you're pretty. I It would bother the shit out of me if the dude that I was dealing with right now, the only reason he hollered at me was because I have a fat ass. Like now I, he appreciates it. He really likes it, but there are a whole lot of things that he likes about me. And the thing that he was attracted to most from the beginning was my brain. Like we met somewhere where, you know, like he heard me speaking. And that was attractive. And then the the bonus was when I turned around.
0: It would be a bonus. It's icing, not cake. Icing.
1: (laughs) Exactly. It's the icing, not the cake. And if you are trying to legislate your entire life and your body based off of what you might get later on down the line in terms of a mate or attention, then you you need to do some self-examination, quite frankly.
0: You know, you were telling me a story the other day about being in the mall in Atlanta with two women who, you know, had visibly visibly had surgery to um, to reshape their bodies. And like the amount of attention
1: we were going through Lenox Mall. This was when it was OK to go through Lenox Mall and it wasn't like a war zone. And my and my daughters were with me and they were old enough to be able to see what was going on and you know like have a conversation about it and make some some judgments and decisions about what they were seeing. And there were these two women. They looked like they were probably Latina. Um, and they were walking through the mall, super shorty shorts, you know, tank tops. Granted it was hot outside, it was the summer. But, you know, like it was there was some extra stuff happening here. Right. You know, like they they were all shined up and glossy and, you know, clothes that were clearly too small and walking through the mall with the intention of being seen, which is what, you know, like folks do at Lennox Mall. Yeah. Before they started shooting up the place um, and, and uh, they walked through the mall and it was like they were magnets. Every Negro from every corner of that mall gathered into the center of that mall and followed behind them, some of them running toward them. I don't know what they were going to do once they added... Like, there was nothing that they could do when they ran up to them besides walk next to them and look or get closer to them and look at their asses. But it's very clear that they had fake asses because the you know, like the hip to butt to thigh ratio was like very Kim Kardashian. Like you can tell that it's not, you know, like real. Yeah. And, um, and dudes were just on swoop down on them. Like this was just like the pinnacle of sexy and beautiful and, and perfection. And my daughters looked at me, I was just shaking my head and my daughters looked at me and they were like, well, they don't, they don't care that it's not real. And I was like, damn, if I don't, I damn, if I know, I don't know what's going on, go, going through these. And they were all black men. I don't know what's going through their heads right now because I would think that they would want, you know, like to, if they were looking at a woman and wanted and desired a woman, you know, for a, her big behind, like, don't y'all want it to be real like they don't care that that looks weird but it looked weird they don't care there's nothing about it that looked even remotely natural they don't care
0: they sit online and they talk about like you know the the shaming of these women who've gone to dr and they've gotten these these bbls and these other surgeries and just be natural but it's like natural isn't good enough and then you shame the women who have the surgery and then you have you know incidents like which you witnessed in the mall where they're literally running behind women who have visible surgery. Like it's
1: right. Right. It's, it's, it's all just an absolute mind
0: fuck circling back
1: to that word. And so, you know, like for, I think that for us as women, what we need to do is just really focus on loving ourselves exactly the way the fuck we are. And stop all of this, you know, like, well, this magazine or this website or what I see on Instagram or what I see on, what I see on TikTok is the way that I should look. And so now I need to, you know, like book my tickets to somewhere to go and get that. Like, it's not fucking necessary. But I wonder if, you know, like this is, this is, you know, grown ass talking. Because yeah. I know, you know, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I was... I was thinking about all of these things and really just down on myself and doing things to myself to try to be, um, you know, the person who fit into these standards or at least downplay that I wasn't fitting into those standards. Um, and so, you know, like, I, I guess that there's, we are, we are all a work in progress, but I just wish that. You know, folks could just appreciate their bodies the way that they are. And, and that, you know, it takes us to talk to our, I'm constantly talking to my daughters. Like they, they love their bodies now. You know, Lila's always loved her body. But Mari, you know, who is shaped just like her mother, had to have some serious come to Jesus talks with her mama about, you know, like, hey, your body is beautiful. You know, like she broke down in tears at, you know, like she was like 12 years old and, you know, walking around with that body can be hard as a 12 year old. Right. And the attention that you get from grown ass, goddamn men. Predators. Right. Predators. Absolutely. Trying to come for you. And then, you know, uh, older boys coming for you and then girls telling you that you're fat and you know, making fun of you because of the way that you have to dress in children's clothing don't necessarily fit you. And so you have to wear kind of a uh, adult clothing, all of that stuff, she was going through it. And I had to coach her through that. And, um, and, you know, like we finally got into the place where she absolutely loves her body, but it took a mother who had gone through that to be attentive to my own triggers, and then to not put those on to her, right? But also to walk her through why it's important that she love her body the way that it is, because it's it's her body. It does amazing things, <laughs> and then we should we should appreciate that much.
0: And that's much different than the approach that your mom took with you. Oh, uh,
1: yeah. Yeah man. yeah, man. Mommy had me on the floor walking backwards on the floor so that my butt would, so I would be walking basically on my butt cheeks so that, you know, like it would get flatter. And, and then one of my best friends, her mother used to, you know, like constantly have some shit to say about my body. And she literally would call me fat to my face. <sighs> And, you know, as a, a 15, 16 year old girl, like I, like my mom had me doing that, you know, like walking backwards on my behind thing when I was like 11, 12 years old. And then uh, maybe even younger, cause we were living in New Jersey then we left New Jersey when I was 11. So like probably like nine, 10. And then, you know, as a, a, a teenager, you know, I was not allowed to get into the pool without a big t-shirt, you know, like I always had to, Kind of cover, wear baggy clothes, or cover it with you know sweaters, tie sweaters around my waist, or you know lumberjack shirts and and things of that nature. That carried on straight until I was like in my thirties. I was dressing like that, um, and you know, extremely uncomfortable with my body. And you know, like I know now as a grown up that she meant well, right? Like as a kid, it was just hurt. But as a mother with daughters, I think what might have been going through her mind was that I know what these grown ass men want. And I don't want her to be tested by these grown ass men who will come for her because she has, you know, like this bubble booty. I know that, you know, like Jordache jeans are a thing. I know that, you know, like every magazine and every commercial and every pop cultural standard, every entertainer is thin and waif-like and doesn't have a behind. But in the real world, Black men like them some, some you know, body. They like body and they especially like booty. And I don't want my daughter to be out here um, putting herself in harm's way. So I understand it as an adult, as a mother of daughters now, what she was trying to do. But in the middle of it as a kid, it, 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 it hurt and it lasted well until I was a grown ass woman, until I had my own daughter's.
0: Every like couple months or so, there's always a, a picture that circulates, or pictures that circulate online of black women shapely who are in classrooms with kids. They're usually covered from their wrist down to their ankle, yep. and there's a national conversation about whether this is appropriate to wear.
1: My girls are not too far um, removed from high school and I I worked in the school or I would you know find ways to volunteer in the school for a very long time until both of them graduated from high school and um the school that they went to here in Atlanta had specific dress codes where they you know like girls were you you couldn't wear skirts that uh were past your if you put your hands to your sides you couldn't wear skirts past your fingers. Um your the tank tops had to be three finger length widths wide at the shoulder. Um, you know, there were very specific rules and which I thought were foul, right? But on top of that, when you put just regular clothes on black girls, they caught hell. So I happened to be in the office one afternoon. Um I forget why I was there, maybe picking up one of the girls early. And there was a black girl who walked in, Demetria. This girl had on a turtleneck sweater with a little belt that was loose and leggings and knee-high boots, and she got sent to the office for wearing leggings. And when I tell you her her sweater was down to her knees, and you could only see like a little slither of of thigh and then knee and 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 calf, and she got in trouble the school resource. Officer or police officer that was in the in the um in the school sent her to the office and then had the nerve to turn to me and be like I don't know why she in here dressed like that she know what the rules are and I looked at him I was like what are you talking about she just has on leggings like anybody else on the planet wears leggings they they weren't she wasn't inappropriate it her her sweater was literally down well past her, um, her thigh and her, and she had on knee high boots. What the hell were you looking at grown ass black man that you felt like she was inappropriate and had to be sent down to the office to have to, to have her mother bring up another set of clothes or to be sent home for what one of my nieces used to live with us. And when I tell you I got called up to that school once a week Behind her going to school, dressed like a regular ass teenage girl, but being called out because she was a curvy black girl. And curvy black girl in the same ass clothes as straight ass white girl always read too much, too sexy, too inappropriate, must go home, or put on this random t shirt and these sweatpants that we have in here for people who violate these rules. That girl stayed getting in trouble. And I just could not understand what the hell is going on in these schools that we keep coming after little black girls It's not the white girls. We keep coming after little black girls for the way that they
0: are naturally fucking shaped. Shamed. I'm just going to call this episode mind fuck probably <laughs> um, but, because that's what it is. It's like you as a teenager, you're shamed for this thing. And then as an adult, To have it honest, you have to kind of have it as a teenager. That's when you start getting it. Right. Um, But then it becomes like this super celebrated thing now.
1: Exactly. Will it be this
0: in 10 years? Who knows? Doubtful, actually.
1: Right. Uh, I can tell you right now it's going to change. And everybody who has all of this stuff being pumped into their asses 10 years from now, they're going to wish they don't have it because everybody's going to be like, nah, pancake asses are in now. And so anybody who has a fat ass is now fat. F A T not P H A T if that's still a word or still a thing with people so and and that's the thing how do you take a teenager who's being punished by grown-ups lusted after punished by administrators and teachers lusted after by teenagers and grown-ass men and then take them and put them into their 20s and tell them everything that we told you is wrong now it's great it's perfect it's perfect. Do that. Do do exactly that. Oh, 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 what wait, it's actually not enough. Go to DR and and add some more shit to that. And then come back. And then we're going to talk about you because you actually went and had that surgery. And we're going to make fun of you because you had that surgery. And and now that you've had that surgery, oh, it's we're going to chase you through the mall. But then next week, we're going to tell you that's no longer a thing and you need to be skinny like, you
0: know, whoever. Mind fuck. That breakdown? Jesus. Yeah, that's what it is. Exactly.
1: And (sighs) And I just wish that we would, as women, we would all touch hands and agree that we're not going to listen to this stupid shit anymore. That we're not going to put up with this stupid shit anymore. That we're not going to be the ones, you know, uh, one of 30 at the airport having, you know, like done something to our bodies that, you know, like has there, there's all kinds of health ramifications behind it for the sake of some, you know, like voice in the sky saying that this is the thing today. And so now we should all do this thing. It's one thing to contour your makeup in a certain way in 2021 versus the way that we wore makeup in 2010. It's all, it's one thing to, you know, like have a hairstyle that's hot today versus a hairstyle that was hot. you know, two months ago, it's one thing to wear a, a, a this certain shoe is, you know, the thing versus that shoe. But when you change your whole ass body for the sake of, what somebody had to say, some some voice somewhere says, this is the thing and we should all be this thing. And if you are not this thing, then somehow you are not worthy. You are not right. You are, um, you know, like you can't be embraced. You can't feel loved or beautiful or fit into clothes or whatever the hell is going on that you think is gonna be a benefit of being shaped that way when we change our bodies physically and put them in harm's way to fit into that 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 thing that standard what can't we all just touch hands and agree that we should stop doing
0: that? It's so hard Deneen. it's so hard though like the messaging just overall about like as a woman like you should be beautiful and this is the standard and you need to meet it like logically it makes absolutely no sense to expect all people to look in this one specific way but the I want to say the the draw the fairy tale that if you look this way then your life will be like a crystal stair it's so overwhelming
1: I know but haven't we all figured out that it doesn't work that way
0: have we no we have not all figured it out (laughs) otherwise there wouldn't be 30 women down in DR on one plane
1: Right. When when do we figure out that it's that? When do I guess I, you know, my question is when do we get to the part where we figure out, you know, when we do, when we have the K. Michelle moment where we figure out, oh, maybe this wasn't a good idea.
0: I don't know but that we do.
1: Life in danger was not the best idea. I really
0: don't I don't know that you, I don't know if people do. I, I think I want, there's got to be some study also, too, about the number of women who like, turn 45 and then like go get plastic surgery. Cause that's a thing too. Yeah. It's not like women just in their twenties and thirties. And like, I think part of that is like, Oh, you know, motherhood and life and you know, just time has taken its toll, but it's a lot of women who go get like snatched at 45 to have like these, um, ideal, the, the yeah. curvy ideal sort of bodies.
1: Yeah. yeah. It takes a lot. It takes a lot to embrace exactly who you are. And I am a testament to that. I promise you. And there's days when I'm in, you know, like I'm sitting in my closet right now so that, you know, like, cause there's a lot of noise in my house right now, but you know, like I'm in this closet and I, I'm looking right at my, my fitness gear. Cause this is where I work out. And, you know, like there are days when I come in here and I go extra hard. Cause I'm like, I don't like the way that I looked in that dress. We all have those days. Yeah. We all have those moments where, you know, like we don't feel like we're at our best, but you know, like I wish that we could all, um, get to this, this, this ideal that we have for ourselves for the sake of our own selves, not for anybody else. I guess that's what, you know, like I wish for everybody that you would appreciate yourself, um, the way that you, and if your, your idea of, I want my body to look this way. And I, you know, like, I want to go and get my boobies done, or I want to, you know, Get my teeth done, or I want to get my nose done. I do that shit for yourself. Don't do that because you know, like, oh, a big ass is in today because that's not the best reason to do that. Do it because it's what you wanted for yourself, yeah,
0: and I thought think also too, just accepting that there's no magic elixir that gives you the perfect life that makes all men that makes all men attracted to you. That makes all people think you're beautiful. That gets you more money that gets you an Instagram sort of lifestyle. If if that's what it is, but there's no magic elixir even with like a flat stomach and a big ass and like D titties that um yeah. that'll make everything work out for you.
1: That's right. That's right. It just does not work that way. And as, as mothers, I hope that we're teaching our daughters the same thing. You know, like I'm super proud that, you know, like, I have a 22 year old and a 19 year old and they're really confident in their bodies exactly the way they are. You know, like they don't have any of the issues that I had when I was 19 and 22 Girl. They're with their skin color with their hair, with their bodies, none of that. Um, you know, and I've, I've written extensively about it on, you know, like I've written about it for the times, um, and for I, as a matter of fact, oh my goodness. So there's this, this, um, there's this page on Instagram. I forget the name of it, but they, they, uh, posted a picture, uh, a screenshot of a story that I wrote for the times a couple of years ago. It's probably like two or three years ago about, um, my daughter's hair, combing Mari's hair. Mari had locks for, um, probably from like age 10 to age 17. And when she got to high school at age 14, she wanted to comb her locks out. And I wouldn't let her because she didn't want to comb her locks out because she no longer liked locks. She wanted to comb her locks out because she didn't look like the other girls at her high school. Mm -mm. And I wouldn't allow it because I was like, you are not like these girls you're, you're not them and you're not going to do this so that you can fit in with all of these other girls. And there was a line that I wrote in there, something to the effect of, you know, when she got to high school, these girls look like, you know, the love and hip hop, the high school version of love and hip hop ATL. And somebody went into the, and that's what they looked like. You know, they all had, Um, you know, long we weaved hair or wigs. They had, you know, like super long eyelashes, and you know, had lots and lots of contoured makeup. They were 14, 15, 16 (sighs) years old, and you know, very clearly experimenting. There's a whole lot of stuff that's on social media that tells you this is the way that you should look, and that's the way that they were dressing. Maybe mom is that way too. I don't know, but my daughters weren't those kids they weren't those kids who are around adults adult women who dress that way who wore everybody in my family has natural hair most of us have locks um you know like we we you know, don't wear a whole lot of makeup and you know that's all our own personal decision right but with my daughters I wanted them to really love who they were first, right? Before they started changing shit up. I wanted you to learn to love exactly who you are. You have every right to experiment later on down the line. If you decide to comb your locks out and, you know, put a weave in it or long braids or whatever, wear an Afro, get a relaxer, whatever you want to, you have the right to do that. But only after... I'm sure that you appreciate exactly who you are without all of that extra stuff. And somebody came into the comment section of that Instagram post and accused me of hating Black women and Black girls for saying that these girls look like, you know, uh, an outpost of love and hip hop ATL. If they do, they do. (laughs) Right. I was like, I'm not making a judgment. I'm making an observation. Observation.
0: Girl, I get in trouble for that all the time. Like I didn't do it. I observed it.
1: Right. Exactly. Like, you know, and, and I, and I made sure to let my daughter know that before she went that route, I needed her to really love exactly who she is. Now, when Mari was 17, then she was allowed to comb her locks out and when she told me why she wanted to comb them out, it was, I want to see what my natural hair looks like in its natural state without locks. Now we're having a conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Now we're having a conversation. Now you're telling me that you're doing this for the right reason. Now you're telling me that you're doing this because you want to see who you are naturally. And and, and, in her mind, even her locks her locks, obviously locks are natural. I have locks all the way down to my ass. They, It's my hair, right? But she wanted to comb them out so that she could feel the the, the natural texture loose. of her hair. Yeah. and Loose, right. And I was like, now we're having a conversation. Absolutely, you could do that. But I wasn't about to authorize her combing her locks out so that she could look like everybody else. Cause it's not her job to look like everybody else. It's her job to look like Mari.
0: Yeah. And that's so, um, I mean, that's, that's a function of, of teenagers and wanting to fit in and, and all of that. Um, Absolutely. you know, it's Absolutely. so crazy though, Janine. like I look, I remember being like early twenties and being so insecure about my appearance. Like I was always like, even probably my smallest was like a four or a six, but all my friends were zeros and twos. So I felt fat.
1: Mm-hmm. But I was yep. so hard on
0: myself, like, and I went natural in high school and, you know, everyone still had, um, you know, Foxy Brown, like the perms with the long weaves, like all the way yep. down their back. And like, yep. you know, I tried that, but I couldn't keep it because my hair was natural and, and like right. the edges were terrible. Like it was uh-huh. a mess. I look back at those pictures and I was like, even with your little chubby cheeks and, you know, no makeup and, and bad hairstyles, like I was adorable. Yep. I was the cutest yep. thing. And, like, I was so, so hard on myself.
1: Yep. Same. Same. The whole time that I thought that I was fat and that I was being called fat by the grown women in my, in my life, I was 98 pounds, yo. 98 pounds. I was a string bean. Quite frankly... I'm glad that I came out of that without like some kind of eating disorder Yeah, because it could have very easily driven me to think that I was so damn fat that I need to either, you know, like become anorexic or what's the other one where you... Bulimic. Right. I could have been either one of those messing around with, you know, like the the grown ass women in my life who were calling me fat, but I was 98 pounds with like thin arms and you know, like a, a hanger, cut styled shoulders, and this bubble booty and hips. And, and when I got to college, the first day that I got to college, I decided that I was going to reinvent myself. Right. Because, you know, like the boys didn't appreciate me, but when I got to college, they were going to appreciate this jelly. Right. So I had reinvented myself and like got myself a whole new wardrobe with my summer money and, you know, like went there and I was, you know, no longer Didi, I was Mm Danine, And, you know walked across the campus and these black boys from Brooklyn and Harlem and you know Queens who were looking at me like ah okay and i was like me you looking at you looking at me you know it was something else to be in a space where um where i was appreciated but still as a as a whew, goodness i'm getting emotional as as, as a kid to have to go through that and look back and see that I was really, really tiny and didn't deserve the kind of attention that was coming my way. Um, didn't deserve the negativity that was coming my way. And, um, you know, and, and, and thanking God that I came through it, but like how, why we keep doing this to our babies? I don't know. I don't know. But when I when I look, there was there was a, a councilwoman back in the day who used to always look at me. I would go to go to work. I was a political reporter for the Daily News, and I would go to work in these short skirts and these short short. Um, like you know, remember when short suits were in in fashion? Yes. You had shorts, and and I would wear that to work with you know like some sensible shoes. And she would always stop me in the hallway and look at me up and down and say, youth is wasted on the young. And I didn't understand what the hell she was talking about. What does youth is wasted on the young mean? What is she talking about now as a grown ass woman? Mm-hmm. I get it. You know, like that youth is wasted on what I had before. <laughs> it's was totally wasted because I was so busy trying to like be something that I was not and, and hide or, you know, like just try my best to, I don't know to be what other people wanted me to be. Um, And I'm really glad that I'm out of that, but I wish that we would all come to those conclusions way earlier or that. And as women, as black women, we would all look at one another and say, you know what, enough. We're not going to do this to each other anymore.
0: This is what it is. You better like it or not. Figure it out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, my love.
1: It's my pleasure. This has been
0: quite enlightening as always. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's always a great time talking to you, honey. Yes.
0: Never a dull I moment with, with you. Love, this love, love, love the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Cause you like faithfully listen. Like you hit me up, you're like, so I heard you say. I'm like, what? <laughs> Faithful. <laughs> Thank you.
1: I'll be sitting here talking back at you, child. You, you don't even know.
0: <laughs> That's so funny. People tell me they do that all the time. This one woman, um, she DMs me like when she listens to the, the show, but she DMs <laughs> me like she's texting me like all her thoughts for the show. I think it's hilarious. Everybody do not start DMing me. That's just one woman who does that. Let her do that. Um, I love it.
1: I'd just just be sitting here just talking back. at That's right, girl. Exactly. Finishing your sentences. All of that.
0: I love it. I love it. My father called me also today. I think he listened to the episode already. And I, or last, I guess, I don't know when this is going to air, but the July 2nd episode, I talked about him. More or less telling me I need therapy.
1: Right, right, <laughs> like, right. That was, that was today's episode, right?
0: Yeah. Um,
1: You're not done.
0: No, but then he called me, which I think after he listened to the episode. And so like, now yeah. I have to go have this conversation with my dad about what I said on my podcast. Like, this is, <laughs> yeah very meta sometimes
1: I think it's hilarious that your dad listens to your podcast and then comes back and tells you that he's listened to it I'm particularly
0: tickled when you tell him not to listen and he does oh no that, that makes him want to listen more he's like oh that means it's a good episode <laughs> yes. but he listens
1: he loves me you Demetrius daddy oh
0: god <laughs> he's gonna call me about this too oh my god all right let me let you go because we can cackle and do this all day the oh, listeners going to be like, yo, what's wrong with them? <laughs> Wrap it up, Pete. Wrap it up. <laughs> all right, Bye my
1: love. <laughs> Take care. All
0: right. Bye-bye. Do you see why I love her? She's so easy to love. I'm so honored that she came on ratchet and Respectable. I don't flip out very often about celebrities, but I have like a whole bunch of writer crushes. And long before Deneen and I worked together and, you know, became friends and sisters and all of that, Deneen was one of my writer crushes. I don't think she knows that, but I knew who she was long before she knew who I was. To have a show, one, and then to like have her on it, absolutely amazing. So this is like a little dream come true. Thanks, Denise. That is the episode for this week. If you'd like a little ratchet and respectable in your life between now and the next episode, please follow me on social media at Demetria L. Lucas on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm posting a little sporadically right now because I'm in the middle of what I'm calling my odyssey. I'm traveling for the next, what, 26, 27 days? So, you know, posting will be a little sporadic, but the podcast will be coming as usual. We will talk again Friday? Okay, thanks as always for listening. Bye.